hear God's word from the book of Jude. We'll be reading verses 1 through 4, although our sermon will focus on verses 3 and 4. Hear God's word. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thanks be to God. You'll remember Jude was not afraid to jump right in to the message of his gospel as he began. His greeting itself lays out the framework of the gospel. Those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. They receive from the Father mercy, peace, and love multiplied. And so as Jude remembers these amazing gospel truths, he comes to his church to whom he's writing with that in mind. And he is really excited to write them a message about the gospel, cherishing the shared faith that they have. But then he realizes there is an urgent need for him to write about something else. As he writes about this something else, he still does not abandon the gospel, but instead upholds it and challenges his readers to do the same. He wants to write a letter of encouragement with a tone of joy and celebration, but this pressing need has made the book of Jude a letter of warning with a tone of dusk and battle. He is setting up a case against these people with his own rhetoric that shows the urgency and the danger of these perverted teachings and actions on behalf of these individuals about whom he is writing. We're going to look at the lies that Jude is confronting, and then we're going to look at the truth that he challenges his hearers to contend for. So we're going to start by looking at the lies, and this comes from verse 4. He writes, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Who are these certain people? Jude is not speaking in friendly terms about them. That phrase, certain people, is not a friendly term. We do know from the book of Jude, from verses 4 and 5 and 12 and, and later in the book, we, we know that these are people within the church. Even if they are not a part of this specific congregation to whom Jude is writing, he says these are people who have crept in. People who have gotten into the gathering of the saints. They've infiltrated their enemies within the camp. More than that, they're leaders and teachers in the church. We see that from verse 12. They are shepherds feeding themselves. Maybe they're itinerant preachers who have spoken at the church. They have, perhaps like the the people of Athens, taught the next new thing. And it may be an exciting, captivating twist on the truth. 
but they are shepherds feeding themselves as they teach. These shepherds are warned about in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The prophet Jeremiah in chapter 23 says, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. They commit adultery. They walk in lies. They strengthen the hand of evildoers. They've become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. Jude realizes that these bad shepherds are coming in and he seeking to shepherd as Christ shepherds is telling them to watch out for these shepherds who feed themselves and lead the sheep astray. We don't know exactly who these people are, but we can get a sense of what they've done and what they're teaching from this letter. Now, the question is, are they teaching what is wrong or are they doing what is wrong? And I think Jude makes it clear it's both. Their actions, their ungodliness reveal that their doctrine also is wrong. They may say that they subscribe to the true Orthodox Christian faith. They may have all the, all the right points. Either they've ignored them or they've twisted them because their lives are not reflecting them. Jude says they have perverted the grace of God. In, in verse 4, they have perverted the grace of our God into sensuality. Jude tells us a few things about this. First of all, in perverting the grace of God and in their sensual actions, they are ungodly people. Now, this is a word referring to a moral deficit. This is people who act like the wicked of the world. If you really saw how they lived and, and saw their hearts and their actions behind closed doors, you would see that they are no different from the world. In verse 15 here in the book of Jude, he really lays into it. He says, The Lord comes to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. He's not afraid to call them out for who they are. Their ungodliness is specifically this perverting the grace of God into sensuality. They say, well, if God gives us grace, we can do what we want. They have become sensual. They are feeding their desires. They are what many people call antinomians. They say, we don't need the law anymore. We live under grace. Jude says this licentiousness leads to eternal damnation. Paul, too, addresses this, especially as he writes to the believers in Galatia. He says, there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. We are free in Christ, but not to sin. And Paul says in Romans chapter six, are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. There's no room for Christians to say it's okay to sin just because we have the grace of God. Now, these teachers about whom Jude is writing, they're living in sensuality and what feels good and what makes them happy, doing whatever they want to do. They follow their hearts. They're expressing the real you. Does this not sound familiar? 
Are these not the lies that we have to fight against every day? By perverting the grace of God and acting so sensually, they reveal that they are still slaves to sin. Because Jude tells us in verse 4 that they have denied our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're not a slave to the master, Jesus Christ, you are still a slave to sin. Paul says in Romans 6, you can, there's only one or the other. Either you're slave to sin or you're slave to God. And these people have shown in their actions that they are not slaves to God. They are still captive to their sinful nature, to the evil one. And Jude doesn't stop there. He continues to describe them as we go through the letter. And we'll see these in more detail next week. They're prideful and they're corrupt, according to verse 16. They're accommodating to culture, as verse 12 says, because they're waterless clouds swept along by winds. They rely on dreams over the faith delivered to the saints. We see that in verse 8, and we see it in verse 3. They use favoritism, pride, and louder is better as their modus operandi. And we know that sometimes those voices look and sound really convincing. So Jude is warning them, watch out. What's going to happen to these teachers? Jude gives us an idea of what is due for those who lead astray the sheep. He says, first of all, they're going to receive judgment. They were long ago designated for this condemnation. Condemnation was designated for them. The ESV says designated. That word also carries this meaning of it was written prior. You can find where it has been said of them, where it was written prior. You'll remember what we read in Jeremiah. Ezekiel also condemns the shepherds who feed themselves. Woe to you, shepherds. Their condemnation has already been written down. We have a sovereign God who knows who these people are. And then if you look forward to verses 14, 15, and 16 here in this little book, the prophecy that Jode that Jude quotes from Enoch is one of judgment against the ungodly. The Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment. We could also understand more, more fully that this designation, that the fact that this condemnation was written about long ago, Jude is actually about to jump into giving you some examples of how this type of judgment, this condemnation, has already been written about. And he gives you three examples in verses 5 through 7. We'll survey them quickly now. We'll look at them more fully next week. But he says, look at these. First of all, look at the people of Israel who came out of the Exodus. Jesus led them out. Jesus led them through the waters of the Red Sea. They appeared to be on the good side. But they, we see in verse 5, face the judgment of their own wickedness. They were destroyed. Although they were a part of the nation of Israel, and although God delivered them through the waters of the Red Sea, they were destroyed because they did not believe the truth of God. And he gives another example in verse 6. The angels, angels who were in God's presence in heaven, they stepped out of line. They abandoned their positions of authority. And they were leaving the place that God had appointed them to dwell. And they received judgment. Even angels in heaven, in God's presence, received this judgment. Eternal chains 
under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. The Israelites, the angels, and now Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7 is, is an example. They practiced this sexual immorality that may be implied in Jude's accusations against these false teachers. They practiced sexual immorality and they pursued unnatural desire and they received judgment, eternal fire, we hear in verse 7. This is what is due for those, even if they appear to be on the good side, even if they seem to be in the right camp, they receive judgment for their false teaching and their ungodly living. And Jude tells his hearers, you must contend for the faith. You must fight back against these infiltrations of the enemy. There's an urgency in the way that Jude writes. They cannot follow the bad shepherds. But this was just a problem for them, right? This doesn't apply to us, does it? Woe are we if we think we are exempt from this. No, brothers and sisters of Christ Presbyterian Church in Kent. Yes, it's easy to see that we are up against a world out there that is full of wickedness and lies, but we are not immune from false teaching infiltrating our minds and our lives, even from within. Jesus gives warning against wolves in sheep's clothing. Jude says of his opponents, these certain men creep in unnoticed. They're ungodly. And by their doctrine and action, they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ, and they are devouring the sheep. Be vigilant against those who teach, those who lead, those who speak and preach. Be vigilant against those who are ungodly. Those who are sensual or teach or practice antinomianism, thinking that they don't need to obey the law anymore. Be vigilant for those who are proud and selfish. Be vigilant when you find those who let culture define their lives more than they let Christ define their lives. Be vigilant when you encounter those who follow their dreams rather than the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. What are some of those things in particular that we must be aware of? Well, we can look far outside the church and see that there's pluralism that says, well, as long as I, you have a little bit of Jesus and you can have some of the other religions too, all religions go the same place. That is a lie. That is false teaching. Universalism that says everybody everywhere is going to be saved. We know these are wrong. Those are on the far reaches of the world in which we interact in terms of how they were, they're not that far in terms of the people we meet and talk to, but we know that it's far in terms of our doctrine. But what if we look a little closer to home? These would be issues that we're facing on the far side of the church. So people who, who claim the name of Christ. You've heard of the ecumenical movement. On the far reaches of the ecumenical movement are these ideas that as long as you have some kind of Jesus in your spirituality, anything that you might disagree with another believer on is not important. Just make sure there's some Jesus in your beliefs. It practically says that any truth you hold, if it's different from another believer and might cause offense, you can't say it's important and it's not worth holding. 
One commentator says, Some of them suggest that you can be a Christian as long as you think that Jesus Christ is somehow significant to your spiritual journey. That's scary. You've probably heard it. And then there's the prosperity gospel and the televangelists who are greedy. They live lavish lives, jumbo jets, defined by greed rather than generosity or humility. And they use the church to take from the sheep rather than to care for them. These are all things under the name of Christian and church. Yet even these still feel far to us. Let's come even closer to home. What about our friends and family members who say, I don't really need the church. It's just me and Jesus. This churchless gospel. It's focused on just me. The, the, the church is just kind of an option to, spiritual pers- to personal spirituality. Sometimes it's an obstacle, according to these people. What a dangerous teaching. Christ has given us the body of Christ and commanded us to be a part of it, to grow with the bride of Christ and the holiness. What about that mystic gospel that we hear? It says salvation comes through an emotional experience with God. The church is there to help me feel close to God by helping me along in my pursuit of mystical union. That's defined by Mr. Trevin Wax. And then, you know, there are other sales pitch books and evangelism methods. You know, guaranteed, your church can grow with these easy steps. What about pastors cheating on their wives and defending it? These are all things that we see even closer to home within the church. And these are false teachings and ungodliness. And then there's the therapeutic gospel, which says God is here to make me feel good. Or there's the moralistic gospel, which says Jesus came to make us better people. I can become a better person if I just follow the law. We also see close to home abusive leadership. We see people who define the success of a church or a pastor based on numbers, wealth, massive people who come, growth rates, etc. And then there are the churches that say, church should really be convenient for you. What about um, just, just worship online? If it's too hard for you to get here, just, just stay online for the foreseeable future because I know that's more convenient for you. I understand live streaming has an important place for those who are shut in, those who cannot make it, those who are sick. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about those who are discouraging getting together like Hebrews condemns. It's harder to care for the souls of the sheep face to face when you're in the trenches living lives, life with them. But that is the hard work that shepherds are called to do. Now, there's one that I think hits especially close to home for us. As Presbyterians, as people who appreciate historic liturgy, there is great value in these things. And I am not saying it is bad to be Presbyterian. And I am not saying that this liturgy is bad. But what I'm saying is we in our sinfulness can twist even those good things and follow the formalist gospel. The formalist gospel says that sin is when I don't keep the church rules and when I don't do what the church regulations tell me to do. Christ, when he died and rose, he gave me an agenda so that I can begin to follow the pre-described forms of Christianity. This is a flagrant problem in many hyper-traditional churches, and we must be on guard against it even in our own midst. 
There is urgency to Jude's message, not just for his audience, but for us. We must be on the watch. We must be looking out. Because their condemnation, the false teacher's condemnation, is just and it is coming. Paul stands by the same gospel. And he says to the Galatians, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to one to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That is Paul going after false teaching in Galatians chapter 1. Do we have the detailed mindset? Do we have the scrutiny to tell if we are sitting under false teaching or not? If an angel from heaven came and preached the wrong gospel, let that angel be accursed. I, as your pastor, care deeply for you. And I want to see you grow in your love for Christ. But I am not a perfect shepherd. And I strive to be more and more like the good shepherd. And so I, with you, am on the lookout for false teachings. Let's be looking for these things that are encroaching in on every side. They're slick. Sometimes they're hard to notice. Sometimes they sound like unity or tolerance. And they sound like really good things. But let us never deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ by our actions or by our false teachings. The warning that Jude gives is contend for the faith. There will come a day when Satan will use his schemes and the bad intentions of an apparent brother or sister to bring perversions to the gospel here at Christ Presbyterian Church. It has happened at every church I've been in, and we would be foolish to think that we will be exempt here. I am grateful for the tools that we have at Christ Presbyterian Church, the guardrails we have against these things. We have a plurality of elders. We have our book of church order. We have the Westminster Standards. We have ultimately the Word of God, Scripture. And we have His Holy Spirit who guides us, who helps us understand the truth. This is also why we state the creeds together. The Apostles' Creed, which we stated earlier, we must never deviate. Is the virgin birth really that important? Go back to the creed. Go back to Scripture. Yes, it is. Let us be people who love the truth, study the truth, go to Scripture to see if what I say this morning in this sermon, go to Scripture and see if what I say is true. Or anyone else who comes and preaches here in the pulpit in a small group over coffee or in passing, go to Scripture. Let's look out for one another. I need your help because I am not immune. Approach me when you see me tending to ungodliness or living in sin or sensuality. Take it to the brothers. Take it to the elders if needed. We have these good things set up. Contend for the faith. But one glaring thing I have failed to mention. What is that faith? What is this truth? 
We've talked about what is false. We've talked about what is wrong. What is true? Jude tells us in verse 3, he says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Let me give you the, the short answer and then we'll unpack it a little bit. The faith is the message and power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the foundation on which we stand. Jesus Christ is the head of this church, and it is his message that is the faith for which we contend. Now, faith often refers to our subjective response. I have faith in. This, that is not what this word means here. It is referring to doctrine, to facts that we hold, things in which we believe. Where do these things come from? They're not made up by man. These are eternal truths. This faith that we contend for is from eternity past. Second Timothy says, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This is an eternal gospel, an eternal truth. This is the covenant of redemption that the Father, Son, and Spirit agreed upon before the, even the beginning of history. It was planned by God from eternity past. This truth that we hold to, this faith, is also historical. It's rooted in true events. God spoke by his Son, as Hebrews 1 tells us, in the days of the New Testament authors. Jesus Christ became a real man. He is the God-man in a real place in history that you can locate on a map that you can fly to. It's the same globe on which you and I walk. He lived and died and was resurrected in time and space. His life was witnessed by thousands and thousands and his resurrection by 500 at least. And many of the witnesses died defending this truth that they witnessed, that they touched, that they saw, that they heard. This gospel is about the historical Jesus of Nazareth. And it was delivered. This faith was delivered once and for all to the saints. It was delivered by the prophets of the Old Testament as they laid out God's redemptive work in anticipation of the Christ. Hebrews 1, 1 says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And he did so not as they made things up, but the Holy Spirit inspired their writings. And you look in the New Testament. The apostles delivered this message by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus even prayed for them. He says, I am leaving, but I'm going to send the helper who's going to help you remember everything that you've witnessed so that you can write it down. And then what did the apostles do? They delivered it to the saints. Paul even says he's delivering it here in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. It's the same word that Jude is talking about, the gospel that is delivered to the saints. And they too were led by the Holy Spirit. Specifically, what is the content? It's about Jesus. It's rooted in history. It's eternal. It comes by the prophets and the apostles. What is it? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul continues when he says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And here's what he received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. 
That's the faith for which we contend. Galatians 1 says the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. We preach Christ crucified. This is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And when Jesus on that cross said, it is finished, there was an active accomplishment of salvation for God's people in that moment on the cross. That's the doctrine that we teach. Let us not stray from it. It has been passed down to us. You find in various places in the New Testament, they started writing these concise explanations of what they believe. In Ephesians 4, we find one. In other places, we find what may be early creeds. Creeds are important for us because they keep us from wandering. You look back at all of history, these people were fighting against this heresy and that heresy, and so they wrote the truth as it is defended against that heresy. We must go back to those and make sure we are also not being drawn into these heresies of the world around us. So what do we do? We contend for the faith right here as believers by repenting and believing in the gospel. If there's no repentance and if there's no belief, it is not a gospel. If it's work hard and do better, it is not a gospel. It is repentance and it is confession and it is faith. We are saved by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. I like that quote. Because it reminds us that our lives then look more and more like Christians. We live by the Spirit. 2 Timothy 1 says, Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. You hear that? The doctrine, the sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. And then immediately he says, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You cannot do this on your own. We do this by the power of the Holy Spirit who shows us the truth of the love that is in Jesus Christ and we guard the good deposit entrusted to us and we stand in the gospel. Paul reminds the Corinthians that this gospel is what we stand on. It says the gospel is in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word that I preach to you. Let's not waver. Let's keep our sights set on the gospel. Let's stay grounded in Jesus Christ and him alone. Let's not cave to these sneaky new gospels that look great and sound great and even look like the name of Jesus is being preached faithfully when it is not. Let's do that together, Christ Presbyterian Church, because we need each other to do this with the Spirit among us and his word at the center. Let's pray to our God. Heavenly Father, I repeat what we prayed earlier, that we are needy people. Because we see lies and we think it is true. So would you, by your Spirit, hold on to us. As we hold on to you, as we hold on to the gospel, would we repent every day of our sins and receive again the good news that Jesus has died for our sins and raised to justify us and to give us hope. Would nothing else stand in the way as we wait for that day? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.